This is The Conversation, episode two, with me, Joseph Boyce. There are two questions that I am asked more than almost any others. What's going on inside of your head, and why are you the way that you are? They're both fairly strange questions, but have very simple answers. This conversation with my mom and my aunt, this podcast, will offer a very unique path to that simple answer. My mom and my aunt are two of the most well-read, intelligent people that I know, and when you listen to me talk to them and hear the way we talk and what we talk about, I think it sheds a fair amount of light on what I'm thinking and why I am the way that I am. Throughout the conversation, you will probably notice that all three of us are people who would rather think than talk, and because of that, we only say about one-third of the ideas that enter our head. And so really the greatest value that could be gained from this would be if it were possible to record everything that entered our minds, even if we never actually said them out loud. That, however, is not possible, so this is the next best thing. At times in the conversation, I am also joined by another guest, Marlo the Cat, named after Christopher Marlo. My aunt's previous cat was named after T.S. Eliot, and whether Marlo is an improvement, I leave up to you. You will occasionally hear Marlo meow. I will be honest, this conversation will not likely remain steadfastly centered on the snippet. In fact, my initial thoughts will probably be the only thing directly connected to the snippet. Instead, the quote will become the lens through which we view the book. We will discuss its ideas and themes throughout the context that the snippet provides. It will be a jumping off point. Ladies and gentlemen, the conversation. I will begin with a quotation and my initial thoughts, and then we will have our conversation and see where it goes. You must seem take it as a gift of God, though it's as dark almost as if it came from the devil. Those are the first words which Mr. Earnshaw uses to introduce Heathcliff to his family, and that is the first sentence that we encounter describing what will become the most important character in the book. Not only does the sentence reveal much about the character, but it hints at two major themes of the book, two things that though they're often as dark as if they came from the devil, must be taken as a gift of God. The first is life, though it is often very, very dark, it must be taken as a gift of God. The lives of all of the characters in this book are indeed very dark, but had they been taken as a gift of God, they may have been quite different. In a way, this novel is about life and all the characteristics that mark it, most obviously love and hate in its most exaggerated form. It is life as can only be portrayed in fiction. The second thing that is as dark as if it came from the devil, but must be taken as a gift of God and marks the novel is humanity itself. Mankind made in the image of God, but corrupted to such a degree that often appears as if it is from the devil. Bronte's characters are so very human, that is what makes them compelling. And so this novel is a study of humanity. 
As much as we may not want to consider him in this light, Heathcliff is a representation of what it means to be human. There's no redemption for Heathcliff, though. Which is, I think, the tragic part of it, that he receives the gift from Mr. Earnshaw that he, he has this opportunity at life. He's starving, he's an orphan, presumably. He has no chance. And he, then he is given a chance, and yet it doesn't work out. Which is the sad tragedy of human life sometimes. Yeah, but even if there is no redemption, he's still, like, at times you still feel bad for him. He's not inherently, just, well, he is inherently tragic, but he's not entirely tragic. He's, at the beginning, you feel badly for him, definitely. But do you still feel badly for him by the middle of the book? I think you get, you feel bad enough for him at the beginning that no matter what he does, you feel some minor strain of sympathy for him no matter what he does you're always longing for him to be better he never he never becomes fully entirely evil really <laughs> he is the hero of the book and i think to that extent there has to be something um where the reader does have that shred of empathy left for him he has yeah. to be relatable and yes he's tragic but no good tragic character is 100% evil or really wouldn't be a character and like you said it wouldn't be human mm -hmm. don't you think he often personifies the worst of human worst of humanity yeah like I said it's this book is what you get if you take life and it's most important characteristics and exaggerate it to a terrible degree so I can only think of one good thing he did, and even then I think he he definitely regretted it. He definitely, it was almost like it was just a gut reaction when he caught the baby that was dropped. And later on he regretted doing it. So I have trouble seeing any good in him. It's not necessarily the good things that he does, but the bad things that other people do to him that makes us feel some sort of sympathy for him. He doesn't necessarily do anything that's good, but I think he's human enough that we do retain a sense that he could be good. Yeah. That there's still, even at the last moments, there's still that part of him, he's you know, looking for Catherine's ghost, and he is mourning. He's, you know, we can, he is a sympathetic character at some levels. It might be kind of off topic, but he, in comparison to other characters in literature, though, that have it rough, that their love walks away with someone else, they have so much more going for it. Like Sidney Carton, Lucy, Mary, Charles, and yet it's Sidney that we love, and Sidney we cry for, and Heathcliff, no one would cry for. to have to interject because the difference between Sidney Carton and Heathcliff is worth discussing but we didn't so we're going to now unfortunately without Aunt Deborah but at least it will be the two of us so 
You did mention Sydney versus Heathcliff very briefly, and we just decided to move on from that for some reason. But you said, Sydney we cry for, and Heathcliff we do not. And really, both of them loved someone that they were rejected by in favor of another person, and then neither of them really let go of it. But one of them, in their failure to let go of it, becomes a character undoubtedly good, who everyone loves, and the other becomes virtually the exact opposite. Why? Well, despite the fact that they both were rejected, the way they were rejected was very different. If you think of Heathcliff, he heard that he was replaced without actually being told. And he also was... His rejection was because of someone that was totally self-centered. Versus Sydney. Lucy liked Sydney. She felt he could always do much more for himself. Sydney actually was not a proud person. He didn't feel he was worthy of Lucy. No, he almost rejected himself. Yes. Um, he knew. He was very that. self-deprecating. He he felt he wasn't worthy of Lucy, but he loved her. And that's his actions when he was rejected were entirely selfless. Heathcliffs were the exact opposite, and that probably stems from what their love was. Heathcliffs' love was entirely a selfless love, or at least we think that, and I think we agree on that in our conversation, but Sydney's love was entirely selfless, and it's, it really was different types of love. Yes, I think Heathcliff had a, a very passionate love but it was very self-centered and Catherine's love for him was extremely self-centered and they were both Catherine's love for Edgar was extremely self-centered I think her love for Heathcliff was probably the least self-centered thing we ever see her do (laughs) did we ever see her do something that wasn't self-centered though or manipulating Lucy on the other hand liked Sydney. He was not rejected. He was still he was a friend of the family. He he was present in their lives. He was still rejected though. <laughs> well, he wasn't it wasn't that he felt that Sydney felt he had a place and lost it. He felt he never achieved it. And knew that he probably didn't deserve it. He felt he didn't deserve it. Although yeah. we could argue yeah. that he, he was perhaps the better man. way better than Charles. <laughs> but well, in terms of class, social standing, Sydney was a typical gifted kid who couldn't get things done. And Charles was not. Charles probably had a lot less potential. But Charles was getting stuff done. Yes, he, so, socially he also was higher up but Heathcliff had that problem but 
their whole... That's true. I didn't think of that. They both were of the lower social class. Mm-hmm. But their loves were motivated by very different things. So Sydney loved Lucy and extended that love to anyone she loved. And he was willing to give his life not just for Lucy, but he promised that he would give it for anyone that was dear to her. And so he gave it to the man that just took the place he would have liked. Heathcliff, on the other hand, hated everyone (laughs) that displaced him and anyone that he felt connected to that. So rather than loving Catherine's child, he hated her and he used her. On the other hand, Sydney wanted to be fondly remembered by Lucy's family. Mm -hmm. So that's it then. They come from remarkably similar circumstance. They both get rejected. Neither of them ever get past that. But one of them takes that and becomes the most noble character in the book and the other becomes probably the worst and it is because of the different types of love that they had mm-hmm. we cry for Macbeth who was full of evil and I maintain that we cry for Hamlet who may have been Shakespeare's least moral character sending two friends to their death without any sense of remorse Heathcliff wasn't that bad Heathcliff was pretty bad though. Was, was, was Heathcliff <laughs> mentally deranged? Probably. Isabella asked that, didn't she? Didn't she when she wrote back to Nellie, didn't she say, Did I marry a, a madman or is he the devil? Or is he demonic? Something to that effect. It's been a long time. But there's the symbol of how they're invoking the idea of the devil. So uh, Kathy at the beginning of the book says she's practicing witchcraft and who knows what else is going on but it's you've got the, the lower class people who, who definitely seem to believe in witchcraft uh, whether or not the upper class people do or whether they're using it um, to say this guy's driving me crazy we say something like that uh, we don't necessarily always mean that that's mental illness and um, people can use the word devil without necessarily seeing it as a you know, specific actually existing satanic force. So I think if we could take Heathcliff as having a mental illness, in some ways some of his actions could be written off as mental illness, but when he made people suffer to the extent that he did, it definitely goes into your quote of the very black side of human nature. But to me, I can't justify any of his behavior. From when he killed Isabella's dog, that's bad, but then he beat her so badly and he treated his son terribly. <laughs> you could just go on and on. It's... Well, yeah, he's inherently bad, but it's sort of the magic of the writing that somehow a lot of us at least still feel bad for him to some degree. We long for him to be better. He 
doesn't get better, but we want him to be, and we feel like he really should be. And that's, I think, a talent of the writing, that you can take a character who does all those bad things <coughs> and still have that... You, you can make your readers still maintain that sympathy for the character. There are very few characters like that. Is that why we're compelled to read it? It's part of it. Yeah. It's part of what makes this, like you said, Jeff, For those one of like the truly it, great books. <laughs> well, I know I'm outnumbered. There's a difference between liking it, there's a difference between loving it and thinking that it's enjoyable. I mean, you can love mm. it as literature, that does not mean that you, like any you want to live your life there. It's not. Oh, no. It's definitely not the sort of happy ever after that you like the ever after part. It's very much not. But there's something that keeps you reading because if it was just one madman or one demon-possessed character, uh, if you were cheering for the others that they could overcome him, he, then he could be a, less of a person. He might as well be a force of nature that they're fighting against, but he's not. He's, like you said, he's very, very human. So it's worth reading because you felt we could relate to him, Joe? <laughs> I'm hoping you can't relate to him, to be honest. You think before you answer that one. <laughs> what part of him can we relate to? He's so terribly flawed, but there is... There's reasons why he's flawed. I mean, he... He's put into a situation where, um, you know, how, who, who of us would have turned out well living in the place that he did? Yeah, that's another thing. It's all the bad things that he does are revenge. Like, and I think awful, the problem is revenge, I like characters but... that are bigger than revenge. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, the sometimes they like characters that are real too. <laughs> yeah, the fact that he is not bigger than revenge is what makes him such a good character. But that's what people talk about when we say that Dickens' characters are such good characters and that these characters are such good characters. They're they don't follow the mold like we so often want them to. Instead they do things that make us hate them, but love them at the same time, and wish for them to be better. I think what makes it into a story is not so much that Heathcliff is experiencing emotions and desires for revenge and hate and love that we might all experience, but he is in a situation where he can act on those things in a very vicious way. So lots of people may feel like he does, but they don't have the opportunities to act. Whereas he is put into the position of power fairly early on in the novel. And, and in some ways is very patient about enacting his revenge. Like it took he takes a long time. A generation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree that he was definitely had a lot against a lot to fight against, but I would have been much more comfortable with Heathcliff if he had limited his revenge to the people that hurt him. Mm -hmm. 
But the reality is, in his master plan of trying to get revenge, he took people that had... He used them. He used people who had in no way inflicted a problem on him. Especially that second generation. Before, as soon as they were born, he had it in for them. That they, they were going to be used to to get what he wanted because he was upset about what had happened to him before at the hands of other people. And I don't think that if I do something wrong, it's your responsibility to fix it. Or you should be punished for what I did. Or don't. But there you go. It is the decisions of other people directly affected Heathcliff and then indirectly they affected his children and well his child and the other children in that second generation so that is sort of giving further evidence to that too it's they directly affected him but they manipulated his personality to such a degree that the decisions that he then made directly affecting other people were changed and shaped by what they had done to him it's interesting that we don't, as readers, really ever hold any of the other characters very accountable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're very quick to say that Heathcliff was wrong to the next generation, that he had a master plan. But even casually, the other characters are, are terrible. And we sort of give them a pass just because we're looking at Heathcliff. Do we, though? We don't like any of the other characters, do we? <laughs> There's that. Would you like me to list the reasons I don't like certain <laughs> Well, I mean, Kathy has, was a major mover in the plot, and the decisions that she made to reject him, um, she's false, she's lying, she... Um, totally self-centered. She's, she's extraordinarily self-centered, much more so than Heathcliff ever could be. Um, and she takes pleasure in it. She makes herself sick just to get attention, pretty much. Um, and yet, other than saying, oh, I don't like her, we, we don't see her as being the evil one of the book. I think that Heathcliff actually has some fear of evil himself. And I don't want to say that he has a conscience, but he is a very superstitious person. And I think he sees himself as living in a world of evil. And so to actually kill another person, I'm not sure that he would dare. But he would kidnap one. And he would brutally beat another. Yes. And he wished to kill someone. Yeah, but there's a big difference between wishing to kill and actually doing it. I think he's brooding on the idea. I think if he, wa- if he found it easy to kill, he would have gone and done it because he certainly has all the opportunities. I mean, he could have killed any of them. He was a strong man. Most of them were fairly weak. I mean, he could have done the deed quickly and we don't have a book. But I think the fact that he, he hesitated and lived in this... <laughs> maybe all of them. <laughs> I think part of his revenge is him fighting against evil. It's... It is evil itself, but it's him fighting against the evil that was done to him. Or at least he thinks that's what he's doing. 
Probably. So he's convinced that what he's doing is... I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say he thinks right it's good, thing. but it's... It's justifiable. It's him getting revenge. When we think... When we go out to get revenge, we're going out to get even with the evil that was done to us. So he's... He... His... That entire story is him trying to fight against the evil things that happened to him. He's probably not directly thinking about it like that. It's probably far more selfish. But when you think about revenge, that's what it is. It's us trying to get even with evil that was done to us. Do you think he had a sort of a early 1800s view too of families? That the family tree, the lineage was very important and so a person represented part of a family rather than an individual of their own merit. Mm-hmm. Unless, well, you could say that he's using Isabella as a tool to get at those specific people, which he probably is. Or, well, no, he definitely is, but is he exacting some harm against her as well because she's part of the family? Or is he purely using her as a tool to get at other people? I think indirectly he he's fighting against this idea of the landed upper, upper class. And he feels like he's the outcast and he wants to turn the tables. So no matter who it is that he sees as being the one who's enjoying privilege while he suffers, I think he's going to have it into in for them at some level. She doesn't have to have done anything specific. Um, he hates the idea of who she is. But I don't think he wants to kill her or necessarily even make her suffer. I don't think he thinks about her that much. But for the others, he doesn't seem to want them dead. He wants them to suffer, which is a whole other level of cruelty. So is there anyone in the story that we like? Is there anyone that's a good person? There are a lot of people who could be good but when they're all together they just make each other worse but individually if they were just individuals they could probably be placed in because <laughs> is good but yeah. well if they were by themselves they'd have no one else to make miserable <laughs> but they're an incredibly selfish lot mm-hmm. either from being oblivious to the needs of others or demanding of attention for themselves or using people and whether it's the upper class looking down um, and thinking that the lower classes are just there for their good it's and it's worse than each person for themselves even it's not just a free-for-all no because Kathy thrives on attention. Like she doesn't want some particular thing. She wants the people to be giving her whatever it is that's the whim of the moment. Yeah, I think she probably enjoyed having Heathcliff and Edgar like, at the same time. Even if she tried to not have them together and like, ever be together, she probably didn't mind that they were together. But... As long as they both wanted her. Yeah. 
Yeah, she wasn't looking for a happy, peaceful marriage. Didn't she make some strange alibi, though, to Nellie that she was going to marry Edgar to help Heathcliff or something? Yeah, she said that that was the <coughs> best did. reason she had for marrying Edgar. Was I the... never understood that reason. Well, I think it was a lie. Yes, but it, like, it didn't even make sense. It wasn't even a well-thought-out lie. I think she felt a little guilty and felt like she had to say something. It was the first thing she could think of. It, she's using Edgar to up her social status. Yeah. Which is what Heathcliff wants to do with her. I don't know. I think Heathcliff really likes her. I don't think he would have gone on such a... Spent his entire life? Yeah, if he didn't really like her. Ruined his entire life? Well, I think he maybe stopped really liking her, but by that time, his goal was revenge, not getting her. Yeah, but I don't think he would have wanted that revenge that badly if he didn't feel some genuine loss, if he didn't feel that he was robbed. But I think he he goes far beyond that. Um, till revenge is the thing that he wants even more than he wants her. Because the reality is, if he loved her as much as maybe even he thinks he loves her, then wouldn't you want to protect her, her child? Well he may see the child as having been the reason for her mother's death. Yeah, like even when he goes back to her, he says that he would forgive her, but... Not her mother. Yeah, so... I could see a very decent argument being made that he would hate the child because that marked her death. Or at least she's the reminder of her, her mother. I mean, he is a very consumed person. You can't really imagine him happily ever after. You can't really imagine him settling down yes, like if to a had, happy if life. If he had somehow done away with Edgar. If Edgar had died of natural causes. And he had married Catherine, I don't think they would have been happy. I think that they you think just they wandered around on the moors all day like they were doing before. But do you think they would have been truly happy? I think they would have self-destructed, no matter what. But Catherine never would have been introduced to the higher social class. She was fine with him until she left for a few weeks and then came back and then started saying, no, you're dirty, no, you don't know how to act. She had no problem with how he was before. She never really was on that urge and desire to be of the higher social class and she never really looked down on him for being of a lower social class until she went there. Well, if it hadn't been that, it might have been something else. I and mean, that was her reason for falling out with him. But she hardly is the definition of loyalty. She, if she's willing to give him over for something as trivial as that two weeks later, and we're not talking about several years, we're talking about a few days, um, 
something else separating them and she could have turned just as easily, I think. If somebody else happened along into the house that she just happened to like him better for whatever reason. Even if he wasn't from the upper class. I mean, she is. All of them are social climbers, but I think that's a part of the 17th century, 18th century. But sometimes it's done much more neatly. Pardon me? Sometimes it's much more neat. Like in Austin, it's much neater, the social climate. Yes, but Austin's funny. <laughs> this is not funny. No, this is not funny. But you can't say that Catherine was a good person. I, I think we have consensus. Before, yeah. before he even showed up, um, as a child, she was already... Ratchet. Yeah, she was already a, someone who was out of control. She was already an attention seeker. I mean, this is her character as a small child. Which is interesting because her father was a good-hearted enough person what prompted him to bring home an orphan. Now, he brings home an orphan and his two own children fly into a fit of rage and can't get over it that the toys that he's brought them are broken or lost. I mean, why, where, where is the disconnect? He's a good, he might be a good hearted person, but I don't think he was the best parent. Well, (laughs) if we're judging him by the success, he was a dreadful parent, but. Maybe it's not fair to judge by success of kids. Well, he also died fairly early and that's when Heathcliff really started to go bad. And Hinton started Heathcliff to go even all, worse. Heathcliff was already bad. He was already like taking advantage of the favor that he had with him to take Hindley's horse and stuff. But at the same time, it he starts to really go after he dies. Well, the only person who had any care and concern for him, even if he was exploiting it, I mean... Uh, He's alone in the world, and they're all against him at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Kathy is is willing to toss him over, so he is no one. In some ways, he doesn't want anyone, though. Well, I don't know how he could live with anyone. Because I mean, he... when his own son came back to live with him, he was horrid to him. When his adopted son, for want of a better word, he was horrid to him as well. Like he, he made people dislike him. I think he got addicted to cruelty. I think he actually was getting a high out of it at some points. So he's I mean, a what masochist? I think he verges on that. Now, whether it's a psychological condition or whether it's a habit, I mean, you could pick that one apart, but he's so much in the habit of taking advantage of people and enjoying seeing them squirm. He's, his goal in life is revenge, so anything that feeds into that is fulfilling his needs. 
He's actually not interested in trying to be happy. No. No, I think if he ever became happy, like, the story wouldn't be the same if he died happy. I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about it if yeah. Heathcliff had died can, happy. It's sort of a compromise that you can get a happier ending in the second generation. Because we want, well, maybe we don't want, but... I want. Yeah, like, the narrative structure demands a happy ending. You have peace at least when he dies. is supposed to end. The genre requires some kind of a conclusion where somebody is still around to be happy at the end. Right, we want a happy ending, but we can't have it with them. So we have a second generation who was tormented and abused and had... But finally the, got some sort like of the peace or rest once yeah, they had the first the generation of the was bad on. things happened to them. But then they provide some sort of happy ending. But we couldn't have a happy ending with the first generation. They're so bad that... Well, first, they're probably not capable of a happy ending. But even if they were, it would make them less. They, they would not be the same if they could have a happy ending. I think they were just incapable of being happy. I mean, you could hardly imagine what they would have been like. What counts as happiness to them? I don't know. I don't think they even knew. Well, they thrived off causing trouble. I mean, Kathy thrives, Catherine thrives off drawing attention to herself and running the show. They're all on a power trip. So their definition of happiness is, is not, you know, out. family and friends and a nice home and a good meal to eat. Like, mundane life's not going to make them happy. If I was trying to find something that we were sort of to learn from this, I think I would have to say that his life was miserable because he needed to exact, he felt he needed to exact revenge. And maybe it's sort of a warning to us that we should behave much differently. Do you think Bronte really has a lesson in mind here? It's so dark. Or horrify. I mean, it is an early Gothic novel. Now, she doesn't overdo the Gothic imagery, um, so we let her away with it and don't even think of her book in that category. But you know, is her purpose to startle? Think of the time that she's writing in. I mean, this is a nice, educated young woman who's really never been out in the world. Uh, producing this kind of stuff. No matter how sheltered she was, uh, even some of the most you know, readily available literature in her time, from the Bible to Shakespeare or whatever else she might have had any access to, have some very, very dark stories. And I think familiarity makes us think that they're kind of innocuous and we can put them in books for children. And but if she's reading them as a young adult, and she's living with them, um, like really, there's nothing that Heathcliff does that you couldn't have a sense of you know, that, that type of an action from the Bible.
from families tearing each other apart to people seeking revenge. Mm -hmm. As nice as all of that is, and as nice as a long, rambling conversation can be, it is time that we return to the quote. You must e'en take it as a gift of God, though it's as dark almost as if it came from the devil. It's sort of the last point at which there seems to be any hope, and it was all downhill after that. Because they don't take Heathcliff as a gift from God, they take him as the exact opposite. And so from that point, it's as if their fates are sealed, and they're not able to break away from that. Yeah. If they had taken him as a gift from God. It could have been a different story. But instead, we're left with a... Something from the devil itself. Something very depressing. <laughs> Is it depressing? No, that's not really the right word for it. It's bleak. It's a very bleak picture of life. Yeah. But right from that first point, they... Nobody ever appreciates anything about Hitler. That's very sad. Does, nobody says anything good about him for the entire book, even before he's done anything that's bad. Well, the only person I think that was even sad when he died was his adopted son. Yeah. And even then, you're not quite sure why he's sad that he could have died. Well, in many ways, he was becoming a little Heathcliff. Just like an awful person to be around. Well, I think Heathcliff wants to... Heathcliff wanted that. ...mold him in that direction. Mm -hmm. That was part of the revenge. So it's a, a dark novel, but it's worth reading. What is the reason to read it? There's lots to study in it. There's lots to... The fact that years and years later, it's still that memorable. The, I think the mood is you can picture these people. There's not much of a plot, not much actually ends up happening. Um, but you feel like you were there. Did you enjoy it? Or just, you think it's good? Well, when you say you enjoy it... Did you like reading it? Well, I read it willingly. I chose to read it, and I chose to finish. And, and I've chosen to time. read it again since, so... I think it, once you start reading, um, you say you enjoy a book, I think people will innocently assume that you thought it was a feel-good book. Yeah. So, whether you enjoy it or not, 
you're compelled to want to finish. Yeah, you enjoy it as literature. You enjoy it as a story. That doesn't mean you found the. That doesn't mean that you found it enjoyable, or nice. It's definitely not a nice experience. Did you enjoy it? I didn't really like it, but I'm considering buying a copy. (laughs) I think there are some books that are good to study. And there are some books that are interesting. And there are some books that you enjoy reading and read because like, you sit down with blanket with a blanket and coffee and read the book because you want to. And it's definitely not one of those. But I think it might be more than a book that's just good to study. I think it might fall into the interesting category. I guess I'm the odd person out. Well, some of my favorite books are not books that have a lot of those enjoyable read-at-once experiences. In fact, most of them aren't. And there are sort of two levels where you can read this book. One where, once you've read it the first time and you know what happens, then you miss out on a lot of what you would get from approaching it that way. Like you approach it for the story. But then there is an entirely other way of reading this where you miss out, like your experience reading it the second time is no less than it was the first time. You can read it for the story and then when you read it that way, It won't be as interesting because you know what happens and a lot of the story is how are they all related but you can read it for a lot more than just the story too the structure of the relationships is is crucial to the story but plot is really not a consideration at all right the fact that you can tell the story in any order and in some ways they do tell it in multiple time periods Mm -hmm. not necessarily given in the same order so, yeah, I think when we say that a story is enjoyable, we often are talking about the plot and the structure, mm-hmm. or we liked the characters, whereas this is, is literature, and so you read it for other reasons. So I think there are people that read it because they feel that it's valuable to have read it, it's other people talk about it, you're supposed to read it. I think that's probably most people. And then there are some of us that just stopped reading it because it was not so enjoyable. Well, I mean, the law of the great literature that you read, you don't actually read it because you find the story or the characters enjoyable. You're reading for other things. And many of the best stories, there is no suspense because either you've read it before or it's famous enough that you've already heard it or the plot really doesn't matter. I think there are a lot of people who are only interested in reading the kind of book where they are reading it. Yeah, but they still read this because they feel like they're supposed to and they know that other people get a lot out of it. (laughs) And so they read it because they're (laughs) going to get a lot out of it. Okay, so does it take... Is it an act of bravery to say, I didn't like the book, I don't like any characters in the book, 
but I still finished reading it. Or didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll end that one. But so many people, it's put on to curriculums. It's, it's studied wherever literature is studied, and it continues to be. And it's an interesting choice. The fact that this book, I think, is more important now than the first time I read it, and that on further readings it becomes more significant with more to talk about, I think that's what makes it a great book. So she has given us a gift from God, even though it seems like the devil. So is the book the gift? Or the, the story? Yeah, I think so. Or is it right. Heathcliff? No. no. <laughs> okay, consensus. It is, Heathcliff is not the gift. Well, they rejected him as the gift, so for the whole rest of it, they have decided right from the beginning that he, he is not a gift. He came from the devil, and you know the, the whole thing from there on, it's just unraveling. I think that's the first thing that he says about... There's something else. He says, I was never so beaten with anything in my life. Well, maybe we can apply that for reading it. But, <laughs> um, but you must need take it as a gift of God, though it's as dark almost as if it came from the devil. That... That's the first Sums thing he says book. about him. And that's... It's the point of introduction, and it's yeah. all downhill from there. So you guys got the gift, and I missed it. Maybe. No. But it's sort of like for a choice. They, the first thing he says about Heathcliff is he presents them with a choice. You must even take it as a gift of God... But then, instead of what he says, though it's as dark almost as if it came from the devil, perhaps more accurately, or treat it as if it's as, as if it's as dark almost as if it came from the devil. He presents them with that choice, those two like sides As. of Heathcliff, and they choose that one, and then that... They choose it immediately, too. Yeah. So it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's very striking that for this whole introduction, Heathcliff is referred to as it. Mm -hmm. So they don't grant him personhood at this point. He's not somebody to engage with. He's not another human to them. And he almost never becomes one, in a sense. I was going to say, he, it's, he isn't time. very it's, human at times. What's it's not kind of always not human. Catherine and Heathcliff go sit together and comfort each other with images of heaven when Mr. Earnshaw dies. Like, they must have sort of liked each They They did. They liked each other to a degree. It's just that that's not the part that Bronte emphasizes because she wants to show the, the tension of terrible relationships that that is her point. There's no use telling us, you know, every happy breakfast they had because it would bore us to death. And it's not a point. If she hadn't chosen Edgar, or even, even if, like, 
if he had heard the rest of that conversation instead of just it would only degrade me to marry him I don't think it would be nearly as bad he but then have... we wouldn't have a book yeah but if we're discussing the elements of the characters like what would have happened then well from a literary point of view she has to keep them in tension so that she can show us what she wants to show us and once it's resolved then that's the end of the book so we're relieved when it was over well if he didn't die at the end it would leave the world in a very scary place so there you have to come to that conclusion or let else you'd let a monster loose on the world yeah you couldn't have a happy ending with that he had to die there was no other and the reality is he in some ways got what he wanted because he believed in an afterlife that he would be reunited once, once he said that Catherine would haunt him for as long as he lived he had to die he had to die he did himself in there if he had let go of her then he could have Gone off to make it into a book either he has to finally be redeemed or, which would have been very nice or he has to die potentially both but one or the other has to happen before the book can end any book that you could spend this long talking about and still not really have come to a place where you read every page there's no need to where you stop because there's nothing left to say You can't imagine talking this long about a book that is going to be gone tomorrow. If you can talk about the book longer than it takes you to read it, that's a good book. And so, there we have it. We really didn't spend that long directly talking about the quote. Instead, it became a jumping off point. We took it, interpreted it, and analyzed it and made it a lens through which we viewed and examined the rest of the book. Heathcliff is inherently human. He can be taken as a gift of God or as dark as if he were from the devil himself. He is like us, of good and evil. And so he is so much better than all other characters because He's someone that, although we don't want to say that we can relate to because he is so evil, we can because he has a potential for evil. Heathcliff is an exaggerated human, and this book is about humanity. This has been The Conversation. Thank you for listening.